What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new Suiting Up, presented by Public.com and OutSystems. And this is our second to final show of the season. It is episode number 14, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. What a ride it's been. Now, this season began 14 weeks ago, and my upcoming PLL season begins in a few short weeks, June 4th to be exact, at Gillette Stadium, the home of our inaugural game of the PLL in 2019, and the home for more college lacrosse Final Fours than most. Quick shout out to the Crafts, who have been instrumental leaders in college, professional, and the growth of international lacrosse. Maybe an early look into a season four guest. Season four. What? When? Anyway, to our episode today and staying on the gridiron with Eric Legrand. He's one of the most inspirational stories in all of sports history. It was 10 years ago that Eric was a top Division I player for Rutgers University, a top 25 football program at the time, perennially if you remember that era. And he was going for a tackle that caused him to suffer a severe spinal cord injury, leaving him paralyzed on the field. Since then, Eric's made constant recovery progress at the Kessler Institute of Rehabilitation, and we talk about his struggles, perseverance, support from his family and friends, more on the show. It's motivational, but more so aspirational. We challenge the norms of how society has pitted able-bodied beings versus those who are disabled. This has been a learning process for me. We often read in books and watch on screen the narratives of It could be worse. You could be in a wheelchair, or at least you can see, hear, taste, think about the other senses. All things that, while they may be well-intended, are unintentionally denigrating to the 61 million adults in the United States who live with a disability. And since that hit, Eric's been signed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to a pro football contract as an undrafted free agent. That was in 2012. In 2017, he was inducted in the WWE Hall of Fame as the third recipient of the Warrior Award, and most notably, he was presented the Jimmy V Award for Perseverance at the 20th annual ESPYs event, where during his speech, he announced that he would walk someday again. Though at the moment, Eric's making the rounds with his new business. It's called the LeGrand Coffee House. Some fire coffee I had that day during our conversation. He coins it as his daily cup of inspiration, and they're growing fast. So here's episode 14 featuring athlete, entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker, Eric Legrand. Today's show is made possible by our presenting sponsors, firstpublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, learn, and invest with any amount of your money. You can invest a dollar into Amazon, for example. They created that system. Check them out at public.com and OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps from web to mobile. We use them at the PLO to solve for our business needs. And no matter the size of your company, visit OutSystems.com to build bespoke apps today. Eric, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Doing fantastic, Paul. Thank you for having me. We're really looking forward to this one. I'd like to start where I think most of your interviews do. And logically, you also say you think about it still every day in that moment on the field. Now, 10 years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago, you're destined to play in the NFL, leader on the Rutgers team. You were a top high school commit there. They were a top 10 program at the time, starting D-end, running special teams as well, which says a lot about uh, skill position and top players in football when they're also playing special teams of who they are as a leader. You're playing against Army. 
MetLife, one of the biggest venues uh, in the heart of the biggest sports capital of the world. The game's tied in the fourth quarter. There's a kickoff. And then you run down and make a huge tackle. What happened that you can remember and when you reflect on that event? I reflect on that play every day, Paul. You know, I think about, you know, when I lined up, you know, the kickoff, I remember saying Santee, the kicker sat right in front of me. What was different? And there's really nothing that was different. I've ran down to so many times on kickoff. That game, I was facing a double team. Two guys came to block me. I was able to split right through them and had a good head start on this guy. I, was, I knew I was going to make the tackle because I've ran down that field a few times before that, and I knew where the play was going. And when, you're, when you've done this before and you play football, you can judge when it's going to be a big hit. Yeah. And you're trying to prepare your body for that. Hmm. And I said, okay, this is going to be a big hit. I, I knew it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to use my shoulder on this play. I'm going to keep my head completely out of it because I'm running straight on and he's coming straight at me. And I know what that could do. If anybody has seen the video, my teammate got down there a little bit before I did and he tripped the guy up. And I put my head down knowing that I wasn't going to hit him with my head because everyone knows if you play football, you see what you hit, you keep your head up. I just knew I was going to hit him with my head. And when his body twirled in the air, my instinct went to go down to hit him with my shoulder, but the trajectory changed and the crown of my head went right into the back of his shoulder blade. And next thing you know, I'm laying on the ground and the trainers come out to me and say, Eric, can you feel this? Can you feel that? And all I could say was, I can't breathe. And they can you, can you move this? Can you move that? I can't breathe. Damn. And you were getting carted off a few minutes later and you said it felt like a thousand pound cinder block was holding you down because when we see these accidents tragically in sport, we're often looking as audience members, as teammates for that person to give us a thumbs up, to have some mobility. And you were trying to and, and couldn't. You had your mom, Karen, down on the field. Coach Shiano was, was almost the first to you uh, on the field. And then, it, you know, 10 years ago, there was this huge shockwave. So you're processing this. And when you're getting carted off, what is immediately going through your mind? Is it end of career? What, where does that downward spiral go? Well, I guess I couldn't breathe in the beginning, but when they lifted me up onto the board, I caught a gasp of air for a second, so I literally thought I knocked the wind out of myself. And if you ever had a wind knocked out of you, you know that, that that's exactly what it felt like. So I'm thinking, okay, I caught a gasp, a gasp of air for a second. I'll be I'll, I'll be all right. And I've had a stinger in my shoulder before where it went completely numb. So I'm thinking, okay, this is just a full body stinger. Everything will come back in a few minutes. And that's why I said, you know, I, I heard the crowd go, ooh, then they went silent. And as I'm getting carted off, everyone's clapping. And I'm like, yes, let me give that thumbs up. Let everyone else going to be okay. And when it didn't move, it was, it was pretty scary. But then you see your mom and your sister on the field and absolutely devastated instantly. I'm like, I got to comfort her. Like, I'm going to be okay, mom. Yep. I'm going to be okay. And they put me into the ambulance. They put another oxygen mask on me. And I went to take that deep breath in and exhale out. And I went, and nothing happened. And I blacked out in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Damn. And, and later that night, you found out the results. It was that you were going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life. Doctors actually said zero to 5% chance of regaining neurological function. That is what the announcers on screen weren't 
expecting because we do see this unfortunately in football and other heavy contact sports on occasion and the reports come through an hour or several hours or sometimes the next day that mobility was regained when that was communicated and in your conscious stream your mental fortitude was like i'm going to be back and that that toughness that we talk about but for the moment when you're processing it what happens how did you think about it you know when they told you know my mom that stuff that zero five percent chance of ever moving again never eating on your own never breathing you know never eating salad food it's just it's demoralized it's devastating mm. but i'm telling you there's something that gave me the i don't know if there was adrenaline flow from the game still since it was a close game but my mindset was still in that survival mode like fight mode and you tell yourself I'll be back. Yeah. I'm going to be okay. And that's kind of where my mind had shifted to because I felt like I was in that survival mode and I knew that I was going to be okay, but I had a long fight ahead of me and little did I know what my, what the outcome was going to be, but I was ready for whatever was set in front of me. That survival mode instinct, that fight or flight is often positioned in football where you have like literally every play you have that sense of aggression matched with fear. I mean, my, my brother, who's my co-founder here, played college football at Dartmouth, and he played on the line, like you, on the defensive side. And it's just not a sport where you can take a playoff. Basketball, lacrosse, soccer, free-flowing games, you could kind of play the field and, and play the pace of play from time to time. You see basketball stars, even the greatest of all time, sometimes take defensive plays off or catch their breath on the on the three-point line. In football, you can't. There's that fight or flight survival mentality. When did you develop that as a young kid in sports? Did it come from sports? Did it come from your upbringing? And how can you share maybe the development of that if it wasn't in eight with our audience? I'm actually glad that you asked that question because I love sharing that story because a lot of times people think that, oh yeah, Eric, he was just so mentally tough, physically tough, played division one football, this and that, but they don't realize the backstory behind it. You know, it started out with playing the game. I don't know if kids play this anymore, but killed a man with the ball on the side of my house <laughs> with with two kids that uh, were two kids, Duck and Joey, the same age as me, and the other kid, Charlie, who was five years older than us. And back in the 90s, yep. you go out there, you play. He threw us into the fence. He threw us into the house. Throw us on top of, you know, some some center blocks, whatever it was there. But every now and then, if I was five years old and I was, you know, athletic and big, I would juke him out and score a touchdown. And that kind of like that, that feeling of being able to get past somebody developed me into playing football. And then I started to grow up. And in my neighborhood, it was flooded with kids. Mm. Every day we were outside. I feel like I'm like the last generation of kids that were outside all the time and playing. And in the neighborhood, a lot of kids were older and a little bit bigger than me. I was always a big one. So I had to match up with the older kids, but I had to find a way to survive. It wasn't easy. I would get thrown around, punched in the ribs, knocked down on the, on the cement when we're playing basketball with glass on the court. But there was no crying back then. It was just, you get up, and it's the next play. So you learn that flight, like you said, that fight or flights mode. And I was always in that fight mode because I was a young kid playing with the older guys. Who were some early coaches prior to Shiano that 
We're helping you develop your size, strength, and speed that you had as a, a top middle linebacker recruit that ended up committing to Rutgers. I mean, you looked like you spent a lot of time in the weight room. <laughs> yeah, I actually got to give credit first to my pop corner coach because this goes back to discipline, actually. So when I was in seventh grade, you know, I was best one on the team. I just wanted the ball all the time. Just give me the ball. I'll go score a touchdown. Yeah. I remember Coach Jack, he told me, he goes, Eric, if you don't block, I'm not giving you the ball. You have to block for your team. So I was like, man, this coach, he, he's not going to not give me the ball. He knows what I can do with the ball. I, two plays in a row, I whiffed on blocks. Yep. And, Paul, I promise you the, that the rest of that game, I didn't touch the ball. And this happened in the second quarter. Yep. So I'm thinking halftime, third quarter, fourth, he never gave me the ball. And the next day in practice, I remember he said, if you come in last, you're going to have to run again. Well, guess what? I came in last on purpose. And he made us again and again and again. I'm like, you know what? This guy's actually serious. And, you know, he made me say, all right, it's not about me. It's about the team. Look what I'm doing to my team right now because I'm being selfish and coming in last. So then when I get to high school, I could offer a full scholarship as a freshman after playing three games of varsity. I had 45 tackles in three games. I remember they wrote, they wrote down on a piece of paper because, you know, you have to be a junior. On this day, September 4th of year, junior year, you'll be offered a full scholarship to Rutgers. So I wrote down on a piece of paper, but it was my unofficial offer as a freshman. But I quit playing baseball and I quit playing basketball. That's only my really regret hmm. in uh, high school. But I said, I'm going to focus everything on football. I only missed one weight room session my entire high school career, and that's because I had to go to a math tutor. I can relate to that. I played multiple sports growing up, and when I was in high school, there was a point my sophomore year, so it wasn't as, as early as, as you, your freshman year, where it was, okay, this you're going to get scholarship offers to play at the next level. So I stopped playing basketball and soccer. And and that to this day is still my only regret because I, I have a, a, a my own philosophy on regrets. I think that things that are mistakes and things that we do that lead to failure are often the ones that, that help us in the long term, even now today, because I fail and make mistakes all the time, I'm still in that moment of, damn, how did I do that? How did I let myself do that? Feeling pain, but I have the perspective that it will change as long as you sit in there. But one thing you said about your Pop Warner coach that is important to amplify is, uh, and I can relate with my college coach, I came in as a touted offensive midfielder, but I couldn't play offense on the team until I learned defense. And all of fall practice, he was making me play defense. And I remember thinking, shit, man, this isn't why you recruited me. I don't love playing defense. But it's that it's that coaching, that mentorship, even for talented young athletes to know that, hey, you're not different than anyone else on the team. Your plays, your plays different. You know you'll hit the field different and you'll lead us to a lot of wins. But from a psyche standpoint, from an education, from a learning standpoint, you've got to lay the bricks like everyone else. And, and that's rare in coaching. It is. And that's the exact feeling that I got from it because I started to see my team suffer. I'm making them continue to run laps hmm. because I'm being selfish and coming in last on purpose. Now my team is dying. And behind. Hmm. I'm like, you know what? He, he, he broke me. That's hmm. exactly what he wanted to do, break me down to realize that I'm not better than anybody else that's out here on this field. We're all working hard all for one goal. And it, it stuck with me still to this day that lesson of just discipline that it's not about me. It's about the team and sacrificing for the team mm. and everyone else that's out there and you don't put yourself first. And that's what's got me to where I am today. 
Yeah, it's amazing how team sports can parlay so much to life lessons. And uh, I've heard you talk about going back into the hospital. So you were you were transferred from Hackensack over to Kessler and your life changed and your teammates were no longer those wearing shoulder pads. They were the doctors and nurses that were helping you. And you started developing relationships similar to those that you had with Coach Shiano at Rutgers and your teammates, except with them. But you talk about investing personally. And, and specifically what resonates with me is it wasn't just about getting the one-way street of, hey, Eric, how are you doing? What's going on? Tell me about your childhood. Tell me your ambitions from them to you. You wanted to learn about them. And, and there's a difference there. It's not just selfless. It is intellectual curiosity. It is bond building. Describe maybe the differences and similarities between your former team on the field and your new team in the hospital and rehabilitation facility. Yeah, so when you play sports, especially in college, you're with those guys all day, every day, whether your roommates in class together, study hall sessions, you develop a bond and you start to learn about them. You start to know where they come from, what makes them tick, what makes them throw to, you know, you start learning about them. Now my life is flipped and turned upside down. I'm going into this rehab facility where I don't know anybody. I know people are here working they're trying to get better. So my curiosity is like, how come you pick this? What made you want to become a physical therapist? What made you want to become a nurse? How could like how come you want to help hmm. people that are in similar situations as me? And it just develops a trust. I actually have a funny story. My first day in physical therapy, uh, I have a my OT named Sean. Mm-hmm. He gets me on the, on a on a mat table and he lays me down. And then he comes up like on top of me, squats down over my head. And I'm like, yo, like what like what you doing? What you doing? <laughs> he goes, Hey, listen, you and physical therapy here and an occupational therapy, we're gonna get close. Yeah. And I was and I started busting out laughing after that. And it was after, you know, after that like comfort level now, I'm like, well, I, I guess that's how it is. And then I started to develop a relationship with him. But it was interesting stuff like that, just being curious, you know, curious because everyone's looking at me and they want to know more about me. But I'm like, I want to know more about you guys and why you do this. Mm, and I think that is a big recipe for any locker room or any business unit or relationship is it's got to be a two-way street and you were doing that in in football and then you're doing it in the in the hospital with your new teammates talk about the exchange of gratitude and, and almost um we call it a little bit of happiness but there's this relatability and i remember talking about this and it being this light switch moment when I had Jay Williams on my show, and we were talking about Flow State and, uh, and this moment when he was playing at Duke where he would struggle as a freshman and he was a first-team All-American. And uh, when he would try to get it back, a lot of times we think it comes from within, and our coaches and teammates will say, hey, find it. And he said that he learned this from Shane Battier, that the fastest way to get it back is to start encouraging your teammates in return, they're going to encourage you back. But when you give, you get. And um, and and I think that in, in your position, when you talked about those moments during the day where you had a ton of, of people coming in and checking in on you and uh, supporting you and telling you how much uh, and how important you were to them, that that really helped you get through the early days. It sure did. Wow. That's, that's a good part because that's part of my journey to come to come back was when I was laying in that hospital bed 
and the tubes coming out of me every which way, uh. neck brace on and this that. But I've always been the person like I like to make people smile. I was like the life of the party. Get everyone, I make everyone happy. You know, I was that happy-go-lucky guy. So all these people now that are coming to see me that I haven't seen in years because I've been in my own little bubble at Rutgers. Mm. You know, people I haven't seen since middle school, elementary school, they're coming to check up on me. And it's just like, well, like what? I, obviously, you know, I'm laying here, but what you, what have you been up to? Yeah. What have you been doing? I appreciate, I appreciate you coming out to see me, taking time out of your day. We haven't spoken in years, but you're here today with me. And I won't forget that. And I'm so thankful for it because that means I left an impression on you back when, whenever our paths crossed that you feel the need to come see me now. And then how did you balance that with the loneliness at night? I think we all experience that from time to time, whether we're, we're going through uh, all different sorts of challenges that may be relative uh, to the next, but the nights get lonely, the weekends get lonely and things of that nature. And you called them almost terrorizing moments. The terrors of the night, it's just that time where you're not by yourself and you're laying in bed and like I said, tubes and coming out of me every which way monitor sounds. That's when your mind really starts to take you places like, where's my life going to be? What am I going to do with my girlfriend now? Yeah. Am I going to be able to graduate college? Is my football career over? Will I walk again? You know, after my mom would leave at 11 p.m. at night to go get some sleep, Coach Yano would stay to me if it's about 1, 2 a.m. in the morning that he would leave. And then I'll tell her I can't move. I can barely even hit my head on the call bell to call a nurse. And I decided to just start when my when my nurses come in the room, I started having conversations with them. And we're all humans. So when you like you start to develop a bond with each other, because that's just how it naturally is when people start talking, you start learning more about each other. People want to either if you're a nice person, people want to be around you. They gravitate towards you. And that's the, the relationship I developed because I said to myself, if these are the people that are going to be here with me now, I have to find some sort of trust level so I could be comfortable because I don't like this feeling right now of this loneliness and not knowing where my life is going to take me. So I'm going to use these nurses and these aides to under, get an understanding of them and start putting me in a comfort state. And honestly, it took me a day, two days, three days once I actually started to reach out to them. And when they would come into my room after that, I was like, hey, how you doing, Patricia? Hey, how you, what's going on, Maddie? And that's how it helped me get through those terrors of the night those first few weeks. We're going to take a quick break in my convo with Eric to talk about public.com. They're an investing social network that I want you to try today. It's a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas with a community of investors on top of that. So the benefit of the community or their social network is that it gives us built-in learning opportunities to learn about things like ETFs and NFTs or media companies that are public, sports companies that trade on the New York Stock Exchange that hold a number of pro sports teams, things that you may not be aware of, but you may like, and now you can invest in. I'm there, you can follow me, I'm at Paul Rabel. I talk about the intersection of media, sports, and business. And last week I talked about the hugely successful Kentucky Derby that took place at Churchill Downs. Hugely successful because NBC owned by Comcast, ticker CMCSA, saw ratings go from 9 million last year to 15 million. So they practically doubled viewership, which is a huge sign for sports and media as we get out of COVID and appointment watching television. 
backtopublic.com. They have no commission fees on standard trades. There are no account minimums to get started. You can invest in literally thousands of publicly traded companies for as little as $1. So these micro-investing strategies. Sign up at public.com forward slash suiting up, and I will get you started with $10 in free stock. So you can try it out and see for yourself. The app is free. If you log in for the first time, public.com forward slash suiting up, you'll get an additional $10. Here's the fine print. It's valid for U.S. residents 18 and older and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures for more. I, I think about the this in multiple phases, and I'd love to get your opinion on it. So the first is when we're experiencing those downward spirals that we need the support of others, the human connection that you had referenced. And then once we start getting out of it, then there is the self-work, the intra-work that we need to do. The mind continues, they're like big woolly mammoths. That, and, and our goal is in life is to know how to uh, diminish their impact on us. They never go away. There's always going to be doubt. It's the way the human brain is wired back to our primal state of survival day to day without shelter. We need to find and hunt our food to stay alive. That's why our brains do that to us. It's historical and it's embedded. So we can develop tactics to lessen the burden or the depth of the downward spiral. Were there things that like self-talk that, that you use today, even as a, on a daily basis when doubt creeps in or what if creeps in, like how do you deflect that almost immediately? Mental toughness that I picked up as an athlete all the times on the field, the weight room sessions when you know your coach is in your face, you're pushing out those last reps and they're saying, you can't do it. You, you're going to break. You're going to break in. And you overcome it in that feeling of joy after you get through such a tough moment. I try to put myself when I'm in those down states, when I'm going through a tough time, put myself in a moment saying, you know, this ain't going to last. You got this. You can push through this. And then once you get over it and you know that 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 time passes, you reward yourself. You feel good about yourself. You know that you're able to get through it. And also being able to, this helps me a lot. I have seen other people's situations that have gone through this injury. I've seen the negative things. I've seen the positive things. And it just steady reminder of the blessings that I have in my life and the people that I have in my life. And it helps me get through this to another level because I have a great support system. And that's why I truly believe that this happened to me for a reason, to showcase that things happen to you in life, but it's not the end of the world. How you see the world now will ultimately show what type of person you are and the effect that you have on everyone around you. And you have defied just about every uh, estimation that doctors had early gave you and, and your mom, Karen, at the time, all the unlikelihood of regaining neurological function. So now you have movement. You worked your ass off in, in therapy, continue to do so. You weren't able to breathe on your own or eat on your own. You said that you're going to walk again. And in that moment, you're going to go back out to MetLife Field. And you have been contributing in a significant way on the fundraising side to spinal cord research. And you mentioned looking at others like Christopher Reed and the foundation that he put together and educating yourselves in, around those with spinal cord injury or paraplegics. How do you continue to maintain such resilience going through 10 years of this, being so focused and confident? You know, it's, it's funny, the focus part... You know, I feel like I've developed a strength where I know things aren't going to happen tomorrow. 
but you have to keep on adding those days up and stacking those good days and develop and keep on progressing towards that. And you're going to have those little mini goals that you set for yourself and you accomplish them. And then you know you're going to have knockbacks. I feel like with spinal cord injuries, you know, it's a, it's a statistic, but every 45 minutes, someone gets a spinal cord injury. Mm. I'm constantly hearing stories, Paul, of how this person got injured or how that person constantly jumping on phone calls with people to give them comfort and some guidance. So as you continue to hear this stuff that's happening, it kind of fuels me knowing that, you know what, this is why I keep on pushing because it's not stopping. It's continuously happening. Diving accidents, car accidents, falling off a ladder, you know, it's continuously happening. But I can see the progress that technology is coming along with and the Christopher and Data Reed Foundation being able to form Team LeGrand. We truly have built a great community around us now mm. that people had no idea about spinal cord injuries, no idea. Now they're out supporting me at every single event. They're meeting people and developing relationships with people. When you start to see the reward of your work and, and then you see the bad side of this still happening, you put that together and that's where you find your purpose and your reasoning. We talked about before the show, the five and a half million people in the US who are paraplegic, spinal cord injury, stroke, MS, cerebral palsy, uh, people with disabilities in the US, over 60 million, 26% of the population. Um, and I like that of day-to-day -day stacking progress. And you did that obviously right out of the gates in the hospital. And then the year later, you led the Rutgers football team out on the field. It was called the Sports Illustrated Moment of the Year. Three years later, you graduated from Rutgers, which was something that you had also just mentioned as a goal of yours with a degree in labor relations. And then on top of it, you were the commencement speaker. <laughs> Those day stackings, the, the challenges there, but when you accomplish that, what's that feeling like? Oh, this is my game day victories. This is what it's all about. You know that feeling of being in the locker room after a big win with your team and you're celebrating, everyone's dancing around, the water's up in there. Yeah. Those are them. Those yeah. are my, I'm not in the locker room anymore, but those moments when you get off that stage and everyone's just like, wow, like congratulations, great job. That's my game day victories. That's what I push for. And the people ask me all the time, like all these awards and accolades that you've received over the years, what's your favorite one? And it's the moment that you just said being able to graduate with my degree in labor relations from Rutgers University in 2014. I have looking at it right in front of me, the mm -hmm. diploma on the wall from Mama Dukes, just like my sister was able to do. Mm -hmm. And being able to give the commencement speech about overcoming adversity in front of 50,000 people and my fellow classmates, man, that was that was something special in the moment that hopefully one day I can look back and tell my grandkids. Yeah, I love that. And to the, the statistics that, that we referenced of number of people with spinal cord injuries to people with disabilities in the US. And something that you often talk about as a motivational speaker is that appreciate what you have and try to understand your goals and expectations, but, but those shouldn't be weighing on you to the degree of anxiety and stress. And it's important to be ambitious and speculative, but appreciate what you have because not many people have it. And I wanted to talk with you because something that I've learned in the last year, year and a half, as I, as I think about able-bodied people and, and disabled-bodied people, is that in the U.S. through media for a long time, and maybe globally, able-bodied people have said it could be worse when referencing disabled people. That feels denigrating to me because I've been able and lucky to build some relationships 
with disabled athletes and you know Paralympic athletes like Lex Gillette, who's blind and one of the most talented long jumpers in the world. And he talks about feeling lucky that he doesn't have to have the trauma of those with sight. And this is someone who could see all the way until he was in middle school. So how do you communicate as a leader, as a thought leader, as a motivational speaker, having the empathy for able-bodied people that sometimes maybe shouldn't be fretting the way that they are and, and saying, hey, you know, understand maybe the, the way that modern media has created this notion of it could be worse, but let's, let's also be mindful of the disability community which is really important and a lot of the the genesis of inventions that all able-bodied and disabled-bodied people use today. So many times people think that if you have a disability, you can't be happy. You can't live a, you know, that, a, a normal life. So they say, oh yeah, he's, he's doing this good for good for him. It could always be worse. But when you when something like this happens, especially when you live an able-bodied life for 20 years before having an injury, it allows you to reflect allows you to look back on all the things that you could do and then all the things that you can't do now. But when you start to put yourself out there, you see that the world will someday will see you different. But having the confidence in yourself to say, you know what, this is the new me. And I'm not going to let anybody else, the able body or not, take away my happiness or turn me off of the goals. With my injury, it was public, so some, I'm somewhat of a public figure, but I've been in plenty of places where people have no idea who I am, hmm. and they stare at me. They look at me. I look back at them. They turn their head real quick. Hmm. People come up to shake my hand, and they reach out, and I said, go ahead, pat it. I can't shake your hand. That's a, it doesn't bother me. Some people will do it. Some people get offended, like, I'm so sorry, man. I'm like, listen, it's okay. I want you to have that conversation with me. I feel like people need to have conversations because when I was at Rutgers, there was a saying that Coach Shannon used to say to us, and I live by it, I truly do. You have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Hmm. You're going to be put in uncomfortable situations in your life. But if you're comfortable in them and you're not afraid to ask the right questions, not afraid to come genuinely ask somebody and ask them, hey, were you born like that? Did you have an injury? Is there anything I could do to help? I want to know more about you. I want to know about your story. Those are the questions that people with disability that may not have as much confidence as I do. That's what they need from the able-bodied community. Hmm. Knowing that, yes, you may be, you may do things different, but there are people that actually still look at you, care for you, and want to help you, want to know more about your life. You never know where a conversation may take you. I love that. So in the, in the spirit of that, what's your advice? How can we be better communicators when we see a person in a wheelchair maybe uh, trying to access a crosswalk without a curb cut. Sometimes I think able-bodied people will either look away or, or not be sure how to address it. So the advice you gave was great, but w what are some of the best communications that, that you've been across or you'd just prefer? I've been in the streets of New York, traveled through it. I've had people in New York City bump me and push me over. You know, everyone's I to move there, they don't care who you are. And I've come to a curb cuts where people come running over to me and ask me for help. And I said, thank you. I got all they see me going down backwards. And I've had people that want to know more, like, oh, wow, like, that's pretty cool you didn't. I've had people like, man, I, I gotta, I, like, I don't want to do any, have anything to do with that. Like, it's kind of like scares them. Mm. So my advice for people is definitely come up to the person, offer help, 
because they may need it. If not, just say thank you. You know, you go about your day. I mean, there's, I don't think there's any like magic tool where you just press a button and everything's going to be okay. But I think the first thing people need to do is offer help. Mm. Don't run away from it. Don't sit there and stare. Offer if the person needs it. They say, yes. Can you help me? Then that's your good deed for the day. If not, they don't need it. Then you go about your business. But don't just sit there and stare and look and then or run away from the situation because it makes you uncomfortable. I feel like that's 10 times worse. That, that's great advice. I'll add that Lex Gillette is one of the brightest and uh, more comfortable people, but hysterical folks I've ever been around. And, and here's someone who, who's blind who tweets. He's one of my favorite Twitter followers. And I'll give you an example is when um, the national championship game was going on this past January between Ohio State and Alabama and Devontae Smith was going off in the first half. He put a tweet out that he could do a better job of covering Devontae Smith than the Ohio State defensive backs. <laughs> and I replied to him saying like, nah, they don't want that smoke. And he was like, my press coverage is on lockdown. And what's brilliant about it is one, he's hysterical, but two, people are thinking to themselves, how's Paul having a conversation with Lex Gillette right now? And, and that takes uh, us to assistive tech and some of that we were talking about. So he uses a Be My Eyes app. And these are applications due to the mobile device. And we can talk about machine learning and such even as a genesis uh, from the disabled community. But you basically click on the app and there's someone on the other side that's communicating with you. It's, a, it's amazing. So she, she'll answer on the other side or he'll answer and say, hey Lex, how's it going? Like, I want to access my Twitter account, see what's going on. This is what I want to tweet. Has anyone replied? Reply back to him with this. And it's fantastic, right? Like Siri is commonplace today, but it's first used to assist those with disabilities. Siri's my girl. I talk to her all the time. Yeah. So Siri, automatic doors at malls, elevators, obviously in Braille, but we talked about curb cuts. There's this wooden ramp. I'm in LA in Santa Monica by the beach that goes all the way out to the water. And that's so people with wheelchairs can get out to the water and, and get through the sand. And there's so many other examples, but to the highlight point is everyone is better as a society because of the brilliant minds of the disabled community and what they drive for all of us in way of innovation. I, I truly believe that because it takes a lot of, like you said, thought and thinking of how someone doesn't have access to their legs or can't use their hands, how can I still give them the full quality of life experience and help them along the way? I used to tweet out before my, my, I had my phone that's hooked up right here and I had no access to the remote. I, I remember after I would put a tweet out because there was no app at the time to change the channel. I said, when your team is losing and your hands don't work and you can't turn the channel, hashtag spinal cord <laughs> problems, and people will lose it. I don't know. I put out one crazy one when Beyonce did the halftime show and people were like, it was funny because people didn't know what to laugh or not. So it was the play that I got injured. And you know, when Beyonce was up there dancing and I put the picture up of me falling to the ground and I put under it, bruh, and I tweeted it out and people said, Wait, yeah. can we laugh at this or not? And I'm over here hysterical. So I know what you mean about that. It was, it's been so fun. But with the, when it comes to the technology, you see you have that mounting system in mm -hmm. front of you with the microphone. I have a photographer where people use cameras. I mount system in front of me where it hooks up my cell phone. I got a stylus pen where kids at Rutgers, engineering students, had made a little system where 
I can take my pen in and out of my mouth so I don't have to hold it all the time. And now I have full access to my phone, just like you would. And that's how I text, tweet, emails and everything. And it's just like you said, the technology, it's insane. Instead of in the beginning of my injury, when I had to call somebody all the time to control my phone. Wow, that's amazing. And and I think going even to the communication point, there are ways that I'm seeing uh, our country and the world adapt and evolve. Uh, I'll give an example of the inauguration in January, a subtlety right before uh, Beyonce sang was a please stand if you're able to. And, and there, there are things that we just miss historically, sign language interpreters, subtitles in movies, but the please stand if you're able was, was one that really landed with, with me in that moment. We can all be better. And number two, and I think this ties into what I'm gonna ask you next, which is it's okay that you didn't know prior. And I think what we have all experienced in this very fragmented society, largely due to what we experienced in 2020, between the reconciliation that America was going through, both dealing with existing racism, historical racism, systemic racism, the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and the unthinkable and uncountable women and men that have been killed due to racism in this country and around the world, it gets accelerated with COVID. And I, my, my sense is that if we strip out politics and we just think about the humanitarianism, one of the, the biggest challenges for people who have struggled to have the conversation is the sense of guilt that they have from being either alive today and not being black, indigenous, or a person of color and knowing that oppression has lived with white people in the United States. The power of sports took center stage. It's been a huge superpower in your life. You have experienced now, probably in your career, the benefit of sports, racism at times, and now stereotypes as being uh, disabled. So the perspective that you have, I'd really enjoy hearing and and I think we could all learn from. I like to think outside the box. And as you you heard earlier, I like to know why. I like to get to know people. So, So I always say the further you go back in history in America, yes, great country, great inventors, you know, coming up with the greatest technology, just everything to be the greatest you know, nation that there is. But it wasn't always for all people. And people have to remember that. And sometimes when people are like, I don't even want to have that conversation, it's not like that anymore. But why? Why? How come you don't want to have a conversation on what things were like in the past? Why don't you want to educate yourself? How come you don't want to be vulnerable? There's people that have to be vulnerable every single day. People that don't feel comfortable people that have to adapt to other environments. I understand humans, they like to stay comfortable in one setting that they don't like change and they're like, you know, my life is good. Why do I need to do this? Well, just think you can put yourself yourself aside and realize that not like life isn't good for everyone else. There's a lot of things that are unfair for people. Well, what's that got to do with me? 
Well, what's that got to do with you is you could be a voice of reasoning, a voice of understanding for somebody that you may not have known before. You could boost somebody's confidence by being able to talk to them. You could boost somebody's awareness of something that they didn't know hmm. if you educate yourself. And that's why I'm always just like when, you know, when there is race stuff, race wars and political stuff, I sit back and say, how come you think that way? How they like the way that you were brought up? What what certain scenario made you say, oh, I hate black people or I hate Chinese people, Asian people, you know, or even you know, I just hate this. Like, what mm-hmm. made you like that? Like, how come you don't have the time of day to look at this? And then you start, oh, well, they riot, the loot, all this stuff. Okay, why don't you look at the stuff that the great things that black people have done, Asian people have done, Latino people have done, white people have done, and realize that this country was built mm-hmm. on all races. Mm-hmm. A lot of hate, but it was built by all races. And that's why I like to go deeper in the conversation than sitting there spitballing back and forth yelling at each other. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of tie-in to Coach Ciano and getting people to feel or try to feel comfortable in the uncomfortable. Even even back to that hit, you've developed a relationship with Malcolm Brown, who was on Army and the guy who broke his collarbone from the hit, but you stay in touch to this day. That is another one for me. It's like, damn, I feel like I would have had some resentment there, even though I know it wasn't his fault. Yeah. Was that tough for you, or is, is it just part of the blessings that we feel from Eric Legrand on a regular basis. Yeah. I literally, I had no, no resentment towards him because I, he was running the ball. He got tripped up. No resentment towards my team. We were all out there trying to win. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, things happened that way and I got hurt. And I remember Malcolm reaching out to me. Well, he was scared at first because he felt awful for what had happened to me and kind of felt responsible for it. I'm like, listen, I tackled you, my man. You were just doing running the ball, you know, like we were just playing football. Yeah, it sucks that this happened, but don't have any, you know, feel bad for yourself. You were doing something that you loved. I was doing something that I love. And that's how we developed a relationship. And I remember the year later, he came down to Rutgers with a bunch of the cadets, and we got to show them Rutgers campus. And then the following year, they brought me up there. And wow, wow, that opened my eyes going up to West Point and seeing it going to day in the life of a cadet. I said, I have the utmost respect, like football, college football at the highest level. That's just, you know, a hobby for the best treat, a treat. What they do on a daily basis is, yeah. now that's that's real life stuff. And and the one thing I want to mention last about Malcolm Brown, it was the day that I graduated, I got my degree and he texted me, he was based in Korea. And he said, Eric, I want to congratulate you on continuing to pursue to get your degree. You have no idea how much of inspiration you are to me and getting to know you over these few years. I use the stories that you've told me and things that you've shared with me to lead these cadets into battle and make them better men. And I will always be appreciative for our time together. And when I hear that, when the sky is based on South Korea and charge of this platoon, whatever it is, I'm like, wow, that's when you know you're making an impact. Mm. Taking our second break from the show to highlight our second presenting partner of Suiting Up Out Systems. They're a partner of ours that keeps our business going here at the PLL, and they make applications that make the difference and solve the needs for your company. Allow me to explain. OutSystems empowers their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud apps for you to capture new markets so you can deliver new services and win new customers. 
basically they white label the apps that we see on our mobile devices through the app store or through test flight platforms where our players, front office and coaches downloaded a PLL app that had PLL branding. They created it and that got us through our COVID safe championship series last summer. And we'll be using that service moving forward for all of our on-site testing as well as our contact tracing and the number of questions and answers we go through on site. So it's quite dense, but it's needed to have a company that specializes in such so we can specialize in the things we focus on, which is driving viewership, sponsorship, ticket sales, and merchandise. OutSystems also works with companies like Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, and more. So huge companies, they even work with small companies. They'll find the price range for you. To find out more, visit OutSystems.com so you can build the difference with them. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Ticketmaster. They are the official ticketing partner of the Premier Lacrosse League and are powered by partner. At the PLO, we're thrilled to announce our 2021 summer schedule in tandem with the Ticketmaster team. That accounted for fan and player safety as our priority. We have a joint COVID policy available and a top class seat manifest for each of our venues, complying with local and state outdoor venue capacities. You can buy your PLL tickets for the first five games at Ticketmaster.com, and we're going to turn on the seat manifest for the back six very soon. Check out Ticketmaster.com. Part of what you do on a regular basis is you speak to other athletes. You spoke to the U.S. women's national team uh, most recently. Of all the different talks that are bespoke in, in nature, whether it's a high school team competing for a state championship, a Division One college football team, or like I said, the, the women's national team. What do you find is the most important piece of advice that, that you can share related to athletes at all levels? As you said, said that because I always say, do you know every single coach, especially in football, has said, play every single play like it's your last play? I try to say, use me as that example because I didn't know when my last play came. And don't ever take that for granted what you get to do. Be thankful. Don't be the one when you wake up. I know, believe me, I, I've been there. Oh, my body's sore. I got another weight room session, another practice, another this, another that. It's just, it happens to us. I want you to look at me, my situation, and say, you know what? Today, I'm going to make it my best day. I may not want to go to practice, but guess what? I have this opportunity. I'm going to bust my ass out here. I'm going to grind it, and it's going to continue to show. And as I continue, when I said before, you stack those days up, stack those days up. When it's your moment to shine, you'll be prepared for it, and you'll be more grateful for it. Because it wasn't always easy, and it may not have always been fun, but look where you're at now. Look how you were able to push through that. Look where you're able to look to other people for inspiration, and only about yourself. And I've tried to leave that all the athletes, and usually they take to it pretty well, and that's the message I try to get across them as the definition of success. And that's the peace of mind you get knowing you did everything you could to be the best you could be. You're the only judge of your success. I love that. And that has carried through with everything that you've done. And it and I think it's important for us as athletes, whether you're currently playing or 
you're aspiring to play or you finished your career is that type of wisdom transfers into everything else you do. It transferred into your therapy, into your, your new relationships with your new teammates, as we call them, to a lot of the work you're doing on the charitable route of spinal cord research and partnership, Team Legrand with the Reeve Foundation. You've raised over $2 million. You've begun a entrepreneurial career. And one of the things that, that we were talking about prior is um, how hopped up I was on uh, Legrand Coffee. That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Guatemalan beans here. They've created a, an aura in our office that, that uh, keeps me going. And you've got your shirt there too. But there's those crossover skill sets. There's the parallel in, in history and community. The community that you built as a, a captain and a leader as a locker room to the two-way street of communication in the hospital rehabilitation center to, you know, coffee's new to you, but the community that you would feel and the vibe you feel at cafe houses that you would start. And now all of a sudden you're like, hey, I want to build something new. So is that part of the genesis? Talk about this new venture that you've begun. It, it truly, it's all those lessons, those moments put together into different, you know, different ways your life takes you. Because we never know where our life is going to take you. I could have told you a year ago when this pandemic all started that I'll be opening up, a co- right. uh, I'll have a coffee shop in a year. I would have looked and said, yeah, what? You're out of your mind. But COVID allowed me to step back, start listening to audiobooks. First audiobook I listened to was mm-hmm. Carly Lloyd. She's a beast. She's an animal. Her will, her determination, mm-hmm. amazing. Then I listened to David Goggins. And that man is just on another planet, just the way that he goes about his life, another planet. But the next one that changed my life was Shoe Dog hmm. with Phil Knight. When I was born, you hear Nike. Nike right. was the big thing. Like it was always Nike. Little did I know the struggles of what it took to get where Nike is. I didn't know Adidas was around before Nike. Puma, no idea. I always just knew Nike was the top dog. The 18 years that he had to bust his butt to get there, going battling through lawsuits, working together with his core team, coming up with stuff on the fly, making stuff up in front of investors. Yeah. No idea. And look where Nike is saying, I said to myself, you know what? I want to create something myself. And at the time, a little opportunity opened up in my downtown area where, you know, it was, it was a, a perfect opportunity where I could have my own little spot for a cafe. And I've, I've never guessed I wasn't a big coffee drinker. But I love cafes and my own vibe. And I said, with my community that I've developed over the years, everything that we're going through right now, I want people to come to my place and leave everything, all the struggles and the problems at the door and come in for a good time over what we call our daily cup of belief. And I said, I want to bring unity to the community. And I feel like when people see my situation, they don't look black, white, Latino. They just think, you know what? I want to be around those good vibes. And that's what we we're creating at LeGrand Coffee House. I'm going to uh, send you a book on Starbucks next if you haven't already read it and a couple of talks that I've heard Howard Schultz give. Not different than Phil Knight or Kevin Plank at Under Armour where maxing out credit cards, figuring mm-hmm. out how to build a product and yeah. finding a marketplace like coffee now that is um, that has really taken off over the last decade. I think I heard you say 85% of people like drink coffee. 85% of the world drinks coffee. It's like the second highest, most traded. They got their besides uh, oil and gold, you know? Yeah. Coffee beans. It's incredible. And you think about it. So many people need that cup of coffee. When I said to myself, when people think of me, what do they think about? 
inspiration, motivator. Well, guess what? Now, when you wake up in the morning, I'm giving you your daily reminder. Go out there and attack that day. There's no excuse. Because when you look at my bag and you say, oh, look, Greg, I wonder what Eric's going through right now. Let me get myself together in the afternoon when you're tired after a long day of work. You need that afternoon cup of coffee. Oh, I bet you Eric's busted his butt at therapy right now. Let me get my act together. That's what I want to do. I love that. I had mine this morning. I have a question. Do you ever get tired? Do you ever like say, hey, I'm going to give myself a day off, a couple days off? Uh, I would say with COVID, it's allowed me to do a lot more in- indoor, obviously. But at nighttime, I get out, I get on Netflix, yeah. I watch a show. And then after that, I'm gone. I sleep like, <laughs> I'm done. like when the day's over, I knock out and I am out cold. Yeah. So that's my time. When I go to bed around one o'clock, I get yeah. up at eight o'clock. Uh, that's, that's my time. Well, uh, all of your time has been super valuable, Eric. We've uh, we've learned a lot sitting here and having a conversation with you, but feel inspired as always and know that everything you touch really is instrumental in and tied to your message of believing and reaching deep down and finding that motivation. So I have no doubt that LeGrand Coffee House is going to provide that inspiration and motivation to a lot of people. Um, and uh, we'll link to any way that you can get your coffee in, in our show description. But the entrepreneurial career that you're under is is no different than uh, the undertaking that, that you have been doing for most of your life. So I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to build our relationship and, and help each other out on, on the business side. Appreciate it. You know, I'm always cooking up something. So believe me, I'll, I'll take you up on that in the you know, next few months or so. We'll talk some go. real business, Paul. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. It was awesome. I appreciate you having me on. And thank you for letting me share my message with everybody. I truly hope everyone was inspired and follow me along my journey on my social media at Eric Legrand 52 and hopefully each and every day that I can just try to impact one person to just be better, do better and help somebody else. Go out there and be the best you can be every day, no matter what your circumstances are. Today's show was incredible. And I want to leave you with a quote that resonated with me and hopefully will you as these days wind more closely to summer, whether you're a college athlete getting ready for playoffs and finals a high school senior struggling to figure out your college plans next year, or you're a parent managing work, the household and family, we are all feeling moments of overwhelm and challenge, sometimes daily, sometimes larger for spanning weeks at a time. And as Eric puts it, not every feeling of struggle or hopelessness has to be tied to an accident like his. We're all experiencing a range of emotions that tip our respective scales of capacity, and that's okay. So he frames it instead in an equal light. Quote, make sure that in tough times, you are always looking for ways to come out better than you were before. Close quote. If you epitomize that like Eric, his brightness and optimism today on the show made a huge impact on me. And it's also very true. Our biggest growth spurts spawn from setbacks. Don't forget it. And thank you, Eric. This show is presented by public.com. By creating a whole new way to invest, you know that public also makes the stock market social, so you can follow investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. Go to public.com and try it today. If you use public.com forward slash suiting up, you'll get $10 on me to make your first investment in OutSystems. Thank you to the group that provides the tools to help the PLL quickly build apps for our players, front office, coaching staff, and fans so that we can get through last year's COVID safe championship series in this upcoming 2021 season. Do stuff like that without systems by going to outsystems.com today.
and everything here was made possible by our incredible team at the POL Podcast. This was produced and edited by Brett Roberts. He also drank LeGrand coffee today. Research done by Andrew Manning. Graphics and design by Liam Murphy. Coordinated by RJ Kaminsky and our overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. Thank you to that team. And next week, we wrap the season. What a blast it's been. I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation on the intersection of sports and human rights, college athletes and bills to pay, people from all different walks of life attempting to find common ground. This conversation is led by former Stanford football player, now the senator of the great state of New Jersey, Cory Booker. We'll see you then.